0: This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you.
1: Welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Michael Walker. And this evening, I'm joined by Femi Nylander. Um, Femi, you're a writer and filmmaker. And I understand you've got a book coming out next week.
2: Um, yes, I have written a book about um, the migrant crisis in the year 2060 um, and how the Home Office uses British Kids who play video games <laughs> to control drones on the border. Some speculative fission, uh, fiction about where we might be going if all this rhetoric continues. Um, so that should hopefully be available um, for um, download um, in ebook version and also paperback um, next week. Um, it's called Seeking Refuge twenty sixty.
1: That sounds incredibly interesting. We have you might recognise Femi from this show before. We have had you on before, but you were on a boat. Um, and your internet connection left a little bit to be desired. So thank you so much for coming into the studio today. Um, Coming up later tonight, Rishi Sunak makes a pretty vile joke about trans people while the mother of Brianna Jai is present. And we look at the state of dentistry in Britain after a new Bristol surgery has seen queues for days. And we take a deeper look at some of the videos Israeli soldiers have been uploading from the war in Gaza. First story, though. Hamas has responded to Israel's proposals for a temporary ceasefire in Gaza and the group have set out their own red lines. Now according to a draft document seen by Reuters, the proposal from Hamas would pause fighting for four and a half months with the intention of leading to a permanent cessation of hostilities. Now this distinguishes it from the Israel-backed proposal which would have only paused fighting for six weeks in exchange for the release of all hostages taken on October the 7th. The Hamas proposal would see the release of hostages broken down into three phases, each lasting 45 days long. Um, Reuters has more details. According to the Hamas counterproposal, all Israeli women hostages, males under 19, the elderly and sick would be released during the first 45-day phase in exchange for the release of Palestinian women and children from Israeli jails. Remaining male hostages would be released during the second phase and remains exchanged in the third phase. By the end of the third phase, Hamas would expect the sides to have reached agreement on an end to the war. The group said in an addendum to the proposal that it wished for the release of 1,500 prisoners, a third of whom it wanted to select from a list of Palestinians handed life sentences by Israel. The truce would also increase the flow of food and other aid to Gaza's desperate civilians who are facing hunger and dire shortages of basic supplies. Mohamed Nazal, a senior member of Hamas's political bureau, spoke to Al Jazeera today about the group's red lines.
3: As you know, there are very specific details, and among these details, cannot be compromised by Hamas. The first demand is to put an end to Uh, the Israeli war, to bring the Israeli killing machine to a halt. Do you think that we will accept the war to continue against our civilian population? This is not acceptable. Another issue. We wish to see the Israeli occupation forces withdrawing from Gaza Strip entirely. Uh, We don't think that the Israelis are, are willing to remain in Gaza Strip. That's why the demands raised by Hamas are lawful and reasonable. The Qatari Prime Minister described Hamas' response as a whole as positive. That's why our response, we believe, is realistic and our demands are reasonable.
1: Joe Biden has called the proposals a little over the top and unnamed Israeli officials have told the Ynet News site that Israel, quote, cannot accept a demand to stop the war um, and highlighted the demand for the release of 1,500 Palestinian prisoners as problematic. This is from the source um, from Israel, including um, what the source referred to as serious terrorists. How to make sense of this? So essentially, to my mind, um, what's going on here? The Israelis, They've said, we will have a six-week... Well, they you know, they approved, actually. I think it was sort of put forward by the Egyptians and, and the Americans and the Qataris. But the Israelis signed on to it, which said, we'll give you a six-week pause if you hand over all the hostages. Now, from Hamas's perspective, what are they thinking? The hostages are the only leverage they really have. Um, so they would have given back all their leverage, and then the war would start in six weeks' time, and Israel would be able to achieve you know, their aims, which are, to some degree, genocidal. Hamas is saying... I mean, their initial thing was saying we'll give back the hostages if there's a permanent ceasefire. This now seems to be a bit of a compromise from Hamas because they're saying we won't require a permanent ceasefire to release the hostages, but what we will do is we'll release them in a staggered way um, and on a time frame that we think could lead to a permanent ceasefire. Obviously, the other issue here um, is who Hamas wants swapped for the hostages. So I think you know, so far um, Israel has sort of returned fairly. I mean, I don't want to say low-level criminals, because a lot of these people have just been you know, completely kidnapped from the street. We know that there isn't really um, due process when it comes to Palestinians arrested by the Israelis. But in any case, they weren't people who the Israelis considered to be particularly high-value or particularly threatening. Um, I think Hamas want to get back some some people who they think are very significant for their movement. There was also talk, actually, of a man called Marwan Barghouti, um, who's been in Israeli jails I think for almost two decades now. So he was—he's often talked up as the potential uh, Mandela um, of Palestine. Um, people often say, "Why, why, why doesn't the, why don't the Palestinians have a leadership that can bring them all together?" Well, in part because Israel imprisons them whenever they emerge. Femi, what do you make of this proposal? Actually, I should also give our audience an update first, because just before we went live, um, Benjamin Netanyahu gave a news conference where he essentially said, "We're going to." continue with this war until we end it, until we achieve all of our aims, the destruction of Hamas. So he isn't speaking in a manner that he is interested in a ceasefire that might be worrying um, to the family members of the people currently held hostage in Gaza, because the only way to get them released is some kind of deal. Femi, your your comments on this? Mm-hmm.
2: I think um, you mentioned the concept of leverage, and I think it it's on both sides, really. The Israeli hostages have acted as leverage, have acted as leverage for, um, um, for the Palestinians and for Hamas, but also they've acted as leverage for Netanyahu and the, and the Israeli government to continue <laughs> basically committing a genocide. Because every time anyone mentions the fact that they're doing a genocide, what's the first thing? that? Come, oh, well, bring back the hostages. Oh, well, if Hamas didn't have the hostages, 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 etc., cetera, etc., cetera, et cetera. So we know, of course, that um, the, the upper echelons of the Israeli leadership Um, are holding on to this whole Hannibal Directive thing to a degree. They are happily bombing areas in which their own hostages are. They have been doing for a very long time. They've killed a number of their own hostages, not just by shooting them whilst they're holding white flags (laughs) on the streets, but also by bombing them and by starving them, by preventing aid getting in. And then they'll say, well, why haven't our hostages got food? Why are our hostages dying of hunger? Because they're in Gaza, and you're starving Gaza. You're blocking off um, aid to Gaza. But we also know that for the um, government of Israel, and for many of the um, people in Israel who agree with the government, getting back the hostages is 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 secondary to the ethnic cleansing and the um, settlement of Gaza. And having the hostages there has given a reason. That they can give in order to basically commit one of the most atrocious um, crimes against humanity on one of the largest scales in terms of time scale in terms of percentage of the civilian population of the area being attacked and just in terms of brutality that the world has seen in recent history
1: the hannibal directive that you mentioned there has been a, discussed a lot since october the 7th it's sort of a, an order um, that sort of a, a code, let's say, by which the IDF works. I mean, it's controversial if they still apply the Hannibal directive, uh, but many people believe they do. Um, and that's to say, we would prefer um, uh, an Israeli to be dead than taken hostage. Obviously, because when they're taken hostage, I mean, they can say it's for humanitarian reasons because when it's being held hostage is worse than worse than death. But essentially, it's it's for strategic reasons because they know that if if a hostage is taken, um, then that is leverage for Hamas. Whereas if the person is dead, then um, it's sad for their family, but it doesn't give any leverage to Hamas. Now, there was obviously a lot of discussion on October the 7th Were some of the people who died on that day, some of the Israelis who died that day, people who Hamas wanted to take hostage, but who the Israeli forces killed before they could be taken hostage. Um, it seems that there are at least some people, one of the kibbutzes, um, who were um, killed by Israeli fire instead of Hamas fire. The extent um, to which... Um, that was significant in more of the cases, is very much disputed. Um, While negotiations continue, as to a ceasefire, although I suppose Netanyahu doesn't seem to be suggesting they are continuing with much um, vigour, Israel has been pressing ahead with its assault on Gaza, moving further into the south of the territory and towards the city of Rafa. There have been airstrikes on Rafa throughout the conflict, but bombing has become more frequent in recent days. This was the aftermath this morning of a strike on a residential building. And there's also reports that today Israeli gunboats shelled the Western Road of the city. Rafah is heavily overcrowded after hundreds of thousands of Palestinians fled there to escape conflict in the rest of the territory. They are dealing with food shortages, disease, and insanitary conditions. And those displaced Gazans now face a tough choice whether to return to destroyed areas in the north or stay and face an imminent invasion as IDF troops edge closer. US Secretary of State Antony Blinken met today with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and Defence Minister Yov Galant. Blinken reportedly said the Biden administration is very concerned about a possible operation in Rafah, as it could lead to mass casualties and tens of thousands of Palestinians pushed into Egypt. Also expressing concern is the UN Chief Antonio Guterres, who said this... I am especially alarmed by reports that the Israeli military intends to focus next on Rafah, where hundreds of thousands of Palestinians have been squeezed in a desperate search for safety. Such an action would exponentially increase what is already a humanitarian nightmare with untold regional consequences. The regional consequences are very interesting, as we've said um, on this show um, Americans or the United States government and many Western governments don't seem too fussed about the welfare of, of Palestinians. They are though, to some degree, fussed about the stability of Egypt. And so I don't think the Americans want to see tens of thousands of Palestinians flood across um, the the Rafah crossing into Egypt because they think that that could destabilize that country. Um, of course, that's not because refugees are inherently destabilizing, but because if you have lots of Palestinians going into Egypt, some of them are probably um, going to continue to try to resist Israel, right? Which might mean that you get sort of border scuffles and then Egypt gets drawn into um, this conflict as well. Um, On Blinken, now Again, this is a theme we often come back to. Blinken said, we don't want you to now bomb the city of Rafa. Obviously, the Israelis have been saying this whole time, and um, we're trying to do this war in a humanitarian way. We've told people to flee their homes in the north and go to Rafa. Okay, they've done that. Okay, well, now we're going to invade and bomb Rafa. They can go back to their destroyed homes in the north if they want. There is no definition of humanitarian um, in existence that could possibly um, say that that is a reasonable thing to do. Blinken, though, oh, we'll ask them nicely. Now, linking back to what we were talking about when it came to the ceasefire earlier, in a way, you know, there is no way that these two bodies, um, the Israeli government and Hamas, sort of can meet because they have very much conflicting priorities at the moment. Hamas are not going to give up the hostages for a temporary truce because, yeah, as we've said, that would end their... That that would mean they don't have any leverage and Israel would just completely um, destroy the the strip after that six weeks. Israel don't have much uh, motivation to come to any kind of longer-term ceasefire because, as we've said, Netanyahu doesn't really care about the hostages. They see this as a -a once-in-a-generation chance to wipe out um, the, the Palestinian movement in Gaza. The only thing that could change this, that could bring the two groups together, is if the United States came in and said, Israel, you can't have everything you want, right? You might think that you can fight this war until you reach your pretty horrific ends. You know, you might think you can fight until total victory, but we won't let you. They could do that with a single phone call, but they won't, right? So anytime you hear an American, not any American, anytime you hear someone from the American government saying, we've asked them to fight this war in a nicer fashion, they could make them fight the war in a different fashion in a second, and they could end the war in a second, Let's go on to our next story. We will be coming back to Palestine later in the show. For now, though, a domestic one. This isn't a queue to see a pop star or to get tickets to some high-profile sporting event. It is instead a queue to see a dentist in Bristol. Yes, people are queued for the last three days to register as NHS patients at the new surgery. Demand is so high that on Monday, police had to be called to manage the crowds. Now, I don't think that's because, you know, the people waiting for a dentist sort of started rioting, um, but there are sort of practical issues when you've got that many people waiting in this street. Now, the St. Paul's area of Bristol, where that queue was, has been without a dentist for seven months after the site, formerly a booper Dental Centre, closed last June. An 80-year-old local resident told Bristol Live this, the dentist has been closed for some time. I couldn't get into any of the other dentists, The appointments were fully booked. The waiting lists were too long. One of my neighbors, she's facing an operation for cancer tomorrow. She'll be somewhere in the queue. She's also disabled and can't stand for very long. But she's had no choice but to stand. So people who are literally waiting in a really long queue when they're having a cancer operation the next day, they're already disabled because they want to see a dentist. That's a pretty basic Request, a pretty basic demand. We want to be able to see a dentist without queuing all day, even when we have a cancer operation on the following day. Bizarre. Well, it's not bizarre, is it's outrageous. And the plight of Bristolians with achy teeth has shone a spotlight on the crisis in dental care in Britain. Across the country, 80% of NHS dentistry practices are refusing to take new patients. And in the Southwest, the figure rises to 99% for adults in need of dental care. So that's the context of that queue in Bristol. Um, It's a dire situation, of course, and Labour have sensed an opportunity. Shadow Health Secretary Wes Streeting was in Bristol this morning giving a live report from the St Paul's Dentist Queue. It's just gone quarter past seven. Uh, There is already a queue of people. Those people have been told that the practice isn't enrolling new patients today, but people are still queuing already on a very cold Uh, morning because they're desperate. I've spoken to one woman who's um, had to go private to get um, some emergency dental work, a bit of um, patching up with a temporary filling. She's desperate now to get into this NHS dentist because otherwise she's going to be hit with a bill of potentially thousands of pounds that she can't afford. Spoken to another man who's been waiting three years without a dentist. As with most health crises in Britain, the Tories have put the blame squarely on the COVID-19 pandemic. And that clearly has played a role. In 2020, the total number of dental treatments carried out in Britain fell from 38 million to 11 million. And the annual figures have not yet recovered. It means there is little hope of clearing any backlog actually built up during those lockdowns. But Tory austerity is also to blame. The British Dental Association has said that real-term spending on dentistry has dropped by one billion pounds since 2010. And that is a fact which Health Secretary Victoria Atkins struggled to deal with this morning.
0: Is the budget lower than it was? So the budget is three billion pounds. But is that lower than it was? As I say, we are spending more on the NHS uh, than we ever have. That is, you know, that is a... But is it lower than it was? Well, it's it's a three billion pound budget. So is it um, lower? Uh, and uh, the, the, a lot has happened in, in those uh, so 10 years yes. that you're talking about. Um, but the, as I say, this is additional money, an additional £200 million on top of the £3 billion. Additional after it's budget it's a budget rich. It's a little bit rich for Labour to be lecturing us when they're... Uh, p- proposals would only provide 700,000 appointments. We have gone the extra mile because we want to turbocharge this and we are offering two and a half million more appointments with a long-term plan for the dentistry workforce. To be fair, the way we get round this Victoria Atkins, is, is not Labour asking you these questions, it's me. All right, well, but you've just quoted West Streeting to me, so I'm responding to the the British Dental Association if you like. They say it's not new money, it's coming out of existing contract values. Health, well, again, it's an additional £200 million.
1: Incredibly cynical, right? That additional £200 million that Victoria Atkins was bragging about is part of a new package offered today by the government to Britain's dentists. It will in part be used to pay £20,000 golden hellos um, for dentists who choose to set up practices in underserved communities. But the British Dental Association has dismissed the proposals as rearranging the deck chairs. And speaking to the Today programme, dentist Dr. Sammy Butt offered an analogy more fitting to the issue of oral health. It's more of a temporary filling
4: and not a very good one, uh, I would say. Um, It just doesn't actually address the things that dentists have been complaining about. Fundamentally, the way that we work the the UDA the unit of dental activity that by which we're measured dentists don't want to work on it. It's a terrible system, and they just haven't moved away from it so that well, really why
2: is this. it a terrible system? Explain that
4: so the UDA stands unit of dental activity it's it's dentists have given a target to work but when I, when a dentist sees a patient, they get one UDA they will one UDA and there's a, a value that's attached to that when they do a filling. Uh, they get three UDAs now. If you do two fillings, three fillings, four fillings, you still get three UDAs, and as such, you only get paid for that that one fee. So there's just simply not enough funding in the system for dentists to work. In. So it doesn't. Right. So, so, it. so,
2: just to be clear, if someone comes to you and their teeth are in really bad shape, yeah. y- you will not get the sum of money that you would actually spend on that person. Correct.
4: Yeah, it just doesn't pay for it.
2: So. And there's nothing in the government's plans that would change that. No.
4: Uh, Even this uplift of this uh,
1: minimum value, that that isn't actually nowhere near enough to cover those costs. So according to Sammy Butt, dentists aren't getting paid enough for NHS treatments to make it worth their while. And the consequences really are dire. The BBC spoke to 54-year-old Gary Tierney from Cambridgeshire, who's been without a dentist for four years. He told them this, No one wants to take on NHS patients. Most of my upper teeth are gone. I've had to pull a few of them myself. Others are just broken and rotting. I can't afford to go private as the first thing they expect you to do is see the expensive hygienist before they will even look at the problem. Gary Tierney told the BBC he had driven to every dentist in the area and they told him they were no longer accepting NHS patients. Let's talk about the politics of this in a moment. Femi, first of all,
2: how's your dental health? Well, we can see I've got most of my teeth. I've got one missing, but it's um it's hidden in the back of my mouth, so it doesn't yeah, got, affect I my think smile I've got the same back. tooth missing, actually. On oh, I suppose <laughs> mine's on the other side. Yeah, fair, 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 fair. The reality is that it's it's the tailor's oldest time, isn't it? It's it's, it's putting. Uh, Doctor Sammy Butt just said it. The government don't want to put money where it needs to go. It's like go private, or 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 don't have good teeth <laughs> don't get dental service, um, is, is, is the message we're getting because where's the money going? The money's going into the pockets of, of, of the mates of Sunak and the rest. And he'd much rather, um, he'd much rather fund those tax breaks, kind of give out those dodgy contracts than he would deal with the fact that the people of the UK need dental care. They need health care, um, they need education and these are public goods. Um, so it's, a, it, it's, it's one that's often overlooked in these conversations, um, dental health. Um, and it's one that's often overlooked in the conversations that happen around the NHS um, more widely because we often talk about how the NHS is, is becoming privatized and how we're trying to move more towards the American system and how um, the pharmaceutical industry is a great big bogeyman, which it is. Um, but we don't often talk about dental health and dental health is related. It's a significant chronic pain. If you ever had toothache, you know how much <laughs> your teeth can really hurt when something goes wrong with them. Um, also, it's, it's, it's related to being able to eat properly. It's related to so many important things that it really should be a public good. But in the eyes of um, our government, it's, it's not. And it's a real shame um, and something which needs to be addressed.
1: It sort of reminds me of, um, if it, was it a Ken Loach movie? I haven't actually seen it, but I saw sort of all the promotion around it. And where he's talking about like the the 1945 Labour government and the creation of the NHS, and you sort of see these sort of clips of someone like using from the bottom of a milk bottle as, as as glasses or whatever. And you're sort of like really looking back into, you know, the 1940s and 50s Britain, um, you know, where people are really having to do it themselves, like trying to fix their medical problems in sort of a real homemade way because they can't afford healthcare. This to me reminds me of that, right? An, an image of... Uh, of a, of a man sort of pulling out lots of his teeth with a pair of pliers or whatever because it's impossible to get an NHS dentistry appointment. That seems like something from a different age, right? That, that should be a sort of black and white Pafé clip. Now, the ones on, on on YouTube where you've got that sort of plummy accent in the background because it seems like it should be a historical fact, not something happening in, in Britain in, in 2024. Also, I mean, in that Victoria Atkins clip, she kept saying you know, she's being asked, has it fallen? She says, well, it's, we spend £3 billion on dentistry, £3 billion on dentistry. Well, that means that if it's fallen by £1 billion, that means it's a 25% cut. Now, I don't know what the government were expecting when they made a 25% cut to dentistry, but that is going to mean a lot of people are waiting to get treatment. Now, I mean, I'm not an expert on dentistry, but from what I understand from what the dentist was saying on, on the Today program, it seems like the issue is that they're not paying dentists enough per people they treat right so when you go to an NHS dentist I think you pay a little bit don't you You pay the sort of that sort of top-up price but fundamentally it's the government who pay the dentist to carry it out now I imagine through austerity they didn't rise that sort of quickly enough or raise that quickly enough and now you end up with a situation where it's not worth their while to treat NHS patients what does that mean they stop accepting NHS patients what does that mean you have people pulling out their own teeth with pliers let's go on to our next story Rishi Sunak is facing a backlash for wildly insensitive remarks he made during PMQs. It comes following the sentencing of Brianna Jai's killers, where the judge suggested transphobia was a factor in the teenager's murder. Brianna's mother, Esther, had met with MPs to discuss new online child safety measures, um, which she says could have saved her daughter. That's why she was present in Parliament when this happened.
2: It's a bit rich, Mr Speaker to hear about promises from someone who's broken every single promise he was elected on. I mean, I think I counted almost 30 in the last year. Pensions, planning, peerages, public sector pay, tuition fees, childcare, second referendums, defining a woman. Although, although in fairness, that was only 99% of a U-turn. The- the list goes on but the theme is the same Mr Speaker it's empty words broken promises and absolutely no plan yeah.
3: Of all of all the work of all the weeks to say that when Brianna's mother is in this chamber shame parading as a man of integrity when he's got absolutely no responsibility. I think the role of the Prime Minister is to ensure that every single citizen in this country feels safe and respected. It's a shame the Prime Minister doesn't share that.
1: It shows two things, doesn't it? I mean, one is complete political incompetence, right? There is the mother of a murdered child, and he makes this sort of transphobic jibe when they're in the Commons, when they're in the Chamber. It's a bit like him making a £1,000 bet just two days ago. Um, about whether or not desperate people could be sent to Rwanda. This is a guy who doesn't seem to have any sensitivity for, for humans and people, really. The other, I suppose, and I, I mean, lots of people have watched this and been rightly outraged. I was. But lots of people have said, well, just because, you know, the mother of Brianna Jai was there, that joke shouldn't have been made anyway, right? Uh, this issue of trans people being made a political football week after week after week, it's vile, whoever is in the building. Later at PMQs, Labour MP Liz Twist asked Sunak to apologise for that remark. Now, he completely ignored her question, and as of now, there's been no official apology from Downing Street either. The Prime Minister's press secretary has said this, though. It's legitimate to point out the number of U-turns the leader of the opposition has made. The whole thing makes Sunak seem both sinister and insensitive, But many have also pointed out that Starmer's willingness to position himself against transphobia hasn't always been consistent. Nicola Sturgeon tweeted this. This was truly terrible from Sunak, but let's not kid ourselves. Had Brianna's mum not been there today, no one, including Keir Starmer, would have batted an eyelid. It's not good enough to stand against transphobia only when the mother of a murdered trans girl might be listening. It needs to be done all of the time. Kemi Badenoch has responded to the controversy as well. She had a different tone, as you can imagine, to Rishi Sunak's statement. Every murder is a tragedy. None should be trivialized by political point scoring. As a mother, I can imagine the trauma that Esther Jai has endured. It was shameful of Starmer to link his own inability to be clear on the matter of sex and gender directly to her grief. As Minister for Women and Equalities, I've done all I can to ensure we have taken the heat out of the debate on LGBT issues while being clear about our beliefs and principles. Keir Starmer's behavior today shows Labour are happy to weaponize this issue when it suits them. Now, it's unclear to me how making jokes about trans people at Prime Minister's questions is taking the heat out of LGBT issues. Of course, that's not the first time Rishi Sunak has done that. These are jokes he tries to make every week because he thinks it's something he has on Keir Starmer. What's more... Kemi Badenoch has a history of both trivializing trans issues and weaponizing them for purposes of political point scoring. So this is from journalist Camilla Turner. No gender neutral lose here. Just arrived at Tory leadership candidate Kemi Badenoch's launch event where makeshift signs have been added to toilet doors to say men and ladies. So this is sort of little joke they made at the launch of of Kemi Badenoch's leadership campaign. There were gender-neutral toilets and say, oh no, we won't have gender-neutral toilets here. And um, we're gonna make these silly little paper signs where one is for men and one is for women. We, of course, seem to be governed by a bunch of adult-sized school bullies. To discuss today's incidents, I spoke earlier to Ugla Stefania, a trans advocate, metro columnist, and the co-director of My Generation.
5: It was just particularly shocking to, to hear that he made no connection between sort of you know cheap crass jokes and anti-trans sentiments to what had actually happened to Brianna and there seemed to be a complete disconnect to you know the mother that was sitting in those chambers at the time and it just became really really shocking but you know it would have been shocking regardless of whether she was in the room or not and it's certainly not the first time that that Rishi has made cheap jokes about trans people so it just seems to be that he doesn't make any connection between his behaviour and, and the impact that can actually have on on the lives of real people like Brianna and, and like lots of others.
1: Do you think jokes made in Prime Minister's questions do sort of filter down to have an effect on, on the lives of, of trans people in Britain?
5: I think they do to a degree. I mean, it all adds up and, and creates uh, a society where making jabs at trans people is okay. And that can then lead into, into more serious things, even though he wasn't saying things that are, you know, directly really hostile and, and really prejudiced. Just the fact that he is the prime minister of the country and is making jokes about about trans people who are a vulnerable minority in the country, it just seems highly inappropriate to me. And yeah, it doesn't filter directly into these, but it it creates a society, doesn't it? And it creates a, a discourse and it creates almost you know acceptance of of people just saying this um and it's i think it's it's quite irresponsible of someone in in such a power of uh, such a position of power and influence to to make these sort of jokes because it, it gives others the almost permission to do so as well you know they see someone who's the prime minister of the country doing it why couldn't they do it as well
1: I think it's clear, you know, Rishi Sunak was making a cheap joke. It was kind of electoral politics of the most cynical kind, which is sort of essentially trying to gain electoral advantage by making fun of a minority who I think everyone will agree are fairly vulnerable um, in Britain at the moment. I mean, at the same time, I think there is, you know, among many people in the public sort of uh, uncertainty. Um, there is a sort of debate to some degree about what it is um, that makes someone Uh, a woman or a man and sort of these various issues, which have sort of come to the fore as, you know, trans liberation has, 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 has moved forwards. Obviously now we're seeing this backlash, but I suppose, do you think this ever is a legitimate question and sort of a legitimate debate? Well, what is a woman or do you just sort of avoid that question entirely?
5: I think the question itself, you know, frames it in a position that someone else can decide who someone is or who they aren't. Um, And I think it actually takes us away from having conversations about the realities of trans people and the realities of of women in general, because um, trans women are susceptible to, to a large majority to all the same things as other women in society. So instead of asking the question, you know, who is a woman and what makes a woman. We need to be looking at what is the lived realities of women across the UK. And for women like me who are trans, you know, we are impacted by the very same things as as other women. Um, And trans people, as has been noted in, you know, hate crime statistics and so on, they have been on the rise in the recent years. So I think it takes us away from the real issues we need to be discussing, which is that society is mistreating trans people and trans women um, and women in general. And regardless of what, people believe or what people, you know, opinions people have about who is a woman, who is not a woman, you know, people like me are, are facing that increased hostility regardless. And that's something we should be addressing rather than having debates in the commons about what is a woman and what type of bodies you need to have in order to be a woman. And I just think it's a distraction away from the bigger conversation that needs to be had. Um, and, and the conversation about discrimination, prejudice, sexual violence, all of these things could impact on on women disproportionately and trans women included as well.
1: I basically agree with you. I think that that question tends to be asked in, I think, a fairly sort of cynical way, sort of a somewhat strange metaphysical question in a way. I mean, at the same time, there are going to be some issues, say sports, for example, um, where whether or not someone is transgender or cisgender or how long someone has transitioned for, you know, these things might be seen as, as relevant. And I wondered, you know, do you think there is a respectful way that these conversations can be had obviously i don't think rishi sunak is trying to have those conversations in a respectful way but have you seen them happen anywhere in the way that you think is sort of um you know reasonable and respectful or do you you know whenever this is raised you tend to think oh this is someone sort of trying to score political points
5: i think there are ways to have these conversations in a really constructive way as long as they aren't you know led by sort of anti-trans sentiments or people who will just not be swayed regardless and i've actually personally had really constructive conversations. Um, in Iceland, where I'm from originally, we passed a law back in 2019 about trans inclusion. Um, and what the law did is was it allowed trans people to change, for example, the legal gender a lot more easier. It was just a, a statutory declaration type process and people can change their gender markers and their names and so on. And actually we had really constructive conversations with institutions like the police, the prison service, um, sports unions, all sorts of organizations and institutions where these debates are sometimes formed around and actually we were able to have really constructive and and useful conversations about this and in the end you know we came to the conclusion that trans inclusion is is incredibly important and we need to to make sure we we continue moving towards that and I think when we in particular talk about things like sports which appear to be a a really hot topic right now because there seems to be some sort of an uncertainty about, you know, what physical advantages are and how they work in different types of sports. And I think these conversations need to be continued to be had. There is more research that needs to be done to sort of affirm the sort of trans-inclusive policies that are in place. But we aren't really able to have those conversations, sadly, a lot of the time because they're completely dominated and overshadowed by really strong sort of anti-trans sentiments. And if a trans person competes in any sport you know god forbid actually do well in a sport it all becomes about how this is just because she's a trans woman and there is no sort of discussion around anything else and even when a trans person is you know in many terms average in her sport but does all right she's still considered to be dominating the sport and and ruining women's sports and so on so it it really is difficult to have these conversations, I think, especially in the media and in politics, because it just becomes about such a big anti-trans sentiment and about arguments that we're not actually having the conversations we need to be having, which can be had. But sadly, it just seems that the media and politicians in, in particular are not really interested in having those constructive conversations.
1: I wanted to ask you briefly about the tragic case of, of, of Brianna Jai. Obviously the reason Rishi Sunaka sort of caused outrage is because Brianna's mother was in the Commons at the time. Um, but I know sort of, we discussed this you know, last week on the show, but there was a period where the police were saying, we don't think this was sort of motivated by transphobia because there was a list of, of various um, other possible victims um, who were cis boys. Um, so they said it was, you know, in a way she was in the wrong place at the wrong time. A judge has now said that transphobia was a contributing factor, so not necessarily um, the the principal cause of 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 the murder, and especially not for one of the um, culprits, one of the people sentenced. Um, But does that, you know, what what significance do you think that has that the, the the judge came to that conclusion?
5: I think it was a really sort of important point to be made because, as you said, when the murder happened, there was a real strong sort of sentiment that people shouldn't, you know, make conclusions, which people obviously shouldn't. But there was almost, a, you know, a form of of telling people that they were being absolutely ridiculous for thinking that this might be connected to her being trans and so on. And I think for trans people, it was... It was, you know, something that trans people weren't surprised by if that turned out to be the case, because we've seen these rise in anti-trans sentiment. So when the proceedings happen and we started to see the type of views that, the two people who were sentenced were holding against Brianna and the type of language they were using and the way they referred to her, it became quite clear that her being trans, you know, was a part of it and and that made her a target. It made her vulnerable, the fact that she was trans and that was something that was acknowledged um, as a part of the the judgment. So I think it was a really important point to make because I think people were quick to sort of sweep it away and say, well, this has nothing to do with trans issues. This is just an unfortunate event in a way to almost dismiss, you know, trans people in general and, and their sort of experiences of discrimination and hate crimes. And and I think it was a really important uh point to make to sort of show people that actually this is the consequences that can happen when we see anti-trans sentiments being repeated time and time again in the media and by politicians. And that makes it into into a more acceptable view to have. And then that forms into you know, prejudice, discrimination, and then really, really violent crimes um, like this and can have an effect on them as well.
1: That was Ugla Stefania speaking to me earlier today. And we do have an update on this story. Um, So Sky News have now spoken to Brianna Jai's father, and he has told them that Rishi Sunak should apologise for his degrading comments. Um, And he said the Prime Minister's comments in Parliament were absolutely dehumanising. So... You know, I think this is, is, is both embarrassing for, for Rishi Sunak, but also Kemi Badenok, because Kemi Badenok's saying, "How dare um, Keir Starmer exploit the death of this 16 year old for for you know for to make a political point?" It was obviously a ridiculous comment on the face of it, but clearly the parents of this murdered child don't see it as Kier Starmer having weaponized it; they see it as Rishi Sunak making the transphobic joke in Parliament as being the problem. Right, so. Uh, that sort of cheap attempt to turn this around I think was pretty disgusting from, from Kemi Badenok and obviously and we're talking about this because of the disgusting joke made by Rishi Sunak and what a contrast as well as to sort of how um, Brianna Jai's parents have responded to this tragedy compared to Rishi Sunak so we showed you actually on on Monday some clips of Esther Jai Brianna's mother speaking to Laura Koonsberg in such a sort of dignified way sort of speaking with both a lot of Forgiveness for the parents of her child's murderer, lots of understanding, not lashing out in any way. I mean, really, a sort of level of bravery and understanding, which I think you know most people would you know, n- not think that they themselves would be capable of. And now you've got Rishi Sunak sort of making a, a, a playground joke at Prime Minister's questions when Brianna Jai's mother is in the room. Completely appalling. And we got a really interesting super chat from Talia. Ivy, um, vile, irrespective, but openly hateful, malicious with Esther there. Makes me feel more unsafe than I already do. Feeds the hate that causes such tragedies. Thanks, Navarro, for your ineffable work. Thank you so much, Talia, for that kind super chat. Um, And thank you, um, everyone, for your super chats. Uh, The main way um, to make Navarro Media a sustainable organization which can continue growing, of course. Um, is to sign up as a regular supporter at nevarramedia.com forward slash support if you are already one. Thank you so much. You make all of this possible. If not, please do go um, to nevarramedia.com forward slash support. Our final story of the evening. Israel's war on Gaza is the first genocidal campaign whose consequences have been live streamed around the world. For three months now, Palestinian journalists and citizens have been uploading images and videos showing the horror raining down on them. The world has now seen countless images of people killed in airstrikes, children maimed by war, and the videos of people mourning entire families killed by the IDF. But there is another set of images and videos being uploaded from the Gaza Strip, those from Israeli soldiers themselves. And the tone could not be more different. Now, in this TikTok clip, An Israeli soldier gives a thumbs up as he drives a bulldozer down a street in northern Gaza, pushing a battered car towards a collapsed building. The caption reads, I stopped counting how many neighbourhoods I've erased. This next clip shows an Israeli soldier putting his feet up in a destroyed Palestinian home. It was uploaded with a parody version of the Israeli song, This Was My Home, which was featured in an Israeli comedy sketch and, according to the New York Times, has spread online among Israeli social media users, making fun of Palestinians. Another song widely used by Israelis on TikTok is a remix called Shtayim Shalosh Shager, or Two Free Launch. Here you can see soldiers dancing on camera. Um, and in this song, when the word launch is heard, the video cuts to a shot of a building being blown up. IDF combat engineers have been particularly busy on TikTok uploading light-hearted videos which show them destroying entire Palestinian communities and civilian buildings. Here, the engineers smoke hooker pipes and make a toast as they blow up four residential blocks. In another video uploaded to TikTok, Israeli soldiers dedicate the bulldozing of a building to Al Golan. He's the Israeli singer who called for the complete destruction of Gaza. All those videos uploaded um, by IDF soldiers to social media were featured in a report in the New York Times. That's a paper which is generally fairly pro-Israel. Before that, some were referenced. So before it was featured in the New York Times, some of those had been referenced by South African lawyers at the International Court of Justice, who used them examples of the genocidal culture within Israeli troops, which comes from the top, as the South African lawyers also showed with regard to statements coming from Israel's leaders. Um, The IDF, have, as you can imagine, distanced themselves from the soldiers making those posts. In a written statement to the New York Times, they said this, the conduct of the force that emerges from the footage is deplorable and does not comply with the army's orders. However, and this won't surprise you, that statement doesn't seem entirely genuine. This is from Haaretz, the Israeli newspaper. Israeli army admits running unauthorized graphic Gaza influence op. They say, an IDF psychological warfare unit ran a telegram channel targeting Israeli audience without approval. The army initially denied involvement, but an internal investigation followed. Haaretz, following Haretz expose revealed its involvement. Now, the telegram channel referred to here was called 72 Virgins Uncensored, and it was operated by members of the IDF's operations directorate. This is from the Haretz report. The channel's administrators posted graphic content such as images of the dead bodies of Hamas terrorists captioned, shatter the terrorist fantasy on a daily basis. On several occasions, they posted exclusive material from investigations or information that was only available to the defense establishment at the time, boasting it was exclusive from Gaza. They uploaded thousands of videos and still images of the killing of terrorists and destruction in the strip and encouraged the channel's followers to share the content so that everyone can see we're screwing them. course, I'm reading from Haaretz here, so whether you would consider these people terrorists or militants or just civilians who have been falsely targeted is, is up to you. Moving on though, the operators used coarse language in a bid to obscure the IDF's involvement in the channel. An October 11th post read, burning their mother, you won't believe the video we got. You can hear their bones crunch. We'll post it right away. Get ready. Photos of Palestinian men captured by the IDF in the Strip and the bodies of terrorists were captioned, quote, exterminating the roaches, exterminating the Hamas rats, share this beauty. A video of a soldier allegedly dipping machine bullets in pork fat is captioned, quote, what a man, greases bullets with lard, you won't get your virgins. Another caption was, garbage juice, another dead terrorist, you have to watch it with the sound, you'll die laughing. I mean, this is just disgusting for anyone to be posting this. But what's really interesting here, I think, is that this was run by IDF operatives. And what you're seeing here, what it explicitly says in this Heretz article, is that one of the reasons they made this sort of so explicit and so gruesome is because they wanted it to seem unofficial. You know, they wanted it to seem organic and grassroots. And they wanted it to seem organic and grassroots because they wanted this spread around Israel. So this idea you know, that, oh, we're trying, to discourage, we're trying to discourage soldiers from sort of celebrating the destruction of, of Gaza and civilian infrastructure. You've got an, a unit within the IDF, like high up in the IDF, within the directorate, who is running this telegram channel, which is precisely intended to sort of seed dehumanizing footage into the Israeli public. They're sort of telling IDF soldiers, share this with everyone. And, you know, th- that is not the sign of a government that is trying to rein in, the genocidal tendencies in the population. Or I mean, it seems to be the genocidal tendencies in the population at the moment. This seems to be uh, a leadership of the IDF which is trying to exploit the genocidal sort of inclinations of the Israeli public right now. You know, they, they are trying to put fuel to the fire, not trying to restrain it. And we can show you some screenshots um, from the chat as well. They were shared by research analyst Nax Bilal um, on Twitter. Now, one video showed... IDF soldiers who desecrated a mosque in Janine singing Hanukkah songs over the mosque speakers. Bilal says the IDF went on to suspend several of the perpetrators, but shared the content on their PSYOP channel anyway. This post in the chat gloats about the destruction of a mosque. You can see all the emoji reacts underneath. Lots of love hearts, thumbs up, um, a poo emoji there. And this next clip is a classic style of video coming from the IDF at the moment. It shows the destruction of Gaza alongside what my producer tells me is called big room house music. Femi, I want your thoughts on this. I mean there's some obvious things to say, which is sort of the idea that the the Israelis are really trying to rein in um, these tendencies of their soldiers, I think, is is for the birds. And we are being sold that sort of in the West. Oh, no, this is a very humanitarian war. Of course it's not. I kind of think, though, in a way, you know, that this is this is what war is like, right? I, I think that we sort of have a tendency and we have managed as a society to say, oh, no, war, you know, soldiers are going to be walking around sort of miserable, or, you know, I, I had to shoot him, but I didn't want to, you know, these are young men um, and young women in the IDF, you know, who have for their, you know, whole life been dehumanizing these people. It's not surprising. And I can kind of imagine, you know, I'm I'm sure if, you know, the American troops in Vietnam also had TikTok, they would be uploading similar things, which absolutely is not to justify. It's just to say, when you fight a genocidal war this is the kind of thing you should you should expect people who pretend that you can have this clinical war i think are, are fooling themselves
2: i'm glad you, you qualified that because first you said this is what war is like and then you said when you have this type of genocidal war and there's a distinction of course which you've which you've highlighted there there's a war where you're scared and where you actually think that you are possibly i mean there's and, and and some troops in gaza um israeli troops in gaza will be scared because the resistance is 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 there and um they they're also getting picked off from time to time. But nonetheless, the genocidal aspect of this is more important because when you look at historical genocides that are labeled as genocides and not kind of obfuscated and called wars in order to kind of justify them to some degree, because the first thing that happened when all this, this, these bombardments started to drop, what happened? It was called the, the, the Israel-Hamas war. Because a war is acceptable. A war has different rules to play. When you're in a war, you're not necessarily um, subject to some of the same restrictions that you are outside of a war. Which meant that we didn't, the international community didn't have to respond in the same way that they should have responded. And we know that they didn't necessarily respond as quickly as they should have to the Rwandan genocide. But the Rwandan genocide was seen for what it was straight out of the bag. And in the Rwandan genocide, one of the main things, of course, was the dehumanization of the group being um, being being targeted, of the ethnic group being targeted. Um, this, this rhetoric of cockroaches, this rhetoric of rats, this rhetoric, it's the same thing happened in the Holocaust. Um, it's a necessary part because human nature is very malleable. Human nature is very flexible. Um, but in order to have your populace, Kind of back you whilst you're doing these things, whilst you're bombing to death tens of thousands of children, you need to radicalize your populace. And this is what we've seen. Um, Israel has this rhetoric where it claims that, um, that, 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 that Palestinians radicalize their children. It even uses it to justify killing Palestinian children. It says, well, these, these Palestinian snake. Children are just going to grow up to be terrorists like their parents. They're giving guns in school. They're giving this, that, and the rest. But as far as I checked, Palestine doesn't have a policy, um, or, or even Gaza doesn't have a policy, where every single Palestinian um young person upon kind of getting to adult age is forced to be conscribed into Hamas. Whereas Israel does have this policy. There's particular exemptions um, for Orthodox Jews, which themselves, like large parts of Israeli society are against these exemptions and say, no, Orthodox Jews should have to fight in the IDF like the rest of us. But it's a society which funnels you into the military. And we can see now that this is a military which espouses radical views. And so this is part of the reason why even within the West, countries like Britain. We see this huge push against the the Zionist narrative. We see this huge rallying cry against. We see that large portions of the population, even if the governments are supporting Israel, large portions of the population are turning against this. The AP um, did a poll a few, few, few days ago, I believe, that said half of US adults say Israel has gone too far in the war. In January, we saw other polls um, from Haaretz that said 75% of um, Jewish Israelis um, reject the idea of shifting the war from the strategy of kind of heavy bombardment on civilian areas to targeting um, the Hamas leadership in a more precise way. And part of that is because the Israeli state knows that it has to radicalize its population. It's a settler colonial population. What does settler colonialism mean? It means that part of the goal is to put guns in the hand of citizens and say, you go and do part of our job for us. They've they've invited over random white South Africans who've converted to Judaism who don't actually have any kind of Jewish history because they know that they're good at this kind of thing and they have a history with apartheid. So when you really look at this, it's not surprising that Israel is involved in this kind of PSYOP operation. It's not surprising that one of the most popular songs in Israel for many weeks was a drill song successfully appropriating um, black British culture um, that um, called for the death of Mia Khalifa and... uh, celebrated the genocide. It's not surprising that on my Twitter timeline I'm seeing videos of Israeli soldiers um advertising their barbershops um whilst standing next to the corpses of dead Palestinian civilians. Um what it is doing is it's um because it's being live streamed to the world is affecting the public imagination globally on what Israeli citizens are actually like um and what the public mood in Israel is itself um and obviously perceptions are going to change on a populace when you see that that populace is more interested in blocking aid trucks to starving children than it is to um kind of protesting and pushing against um the people doing the starving um of these children but um yeah, it's a tailor's old of time. If you as a state are going to commit a genocide, then you have to corrupt the minds of your own citizens. You have to turn your citizens into the worst versions of themselves. And it's something which is really um, sad and disheartening to see.
1: I read in, um, it was Vincent Bevin's latest book, actually, where he is talking about sort of the hopes that people had about social media. And I think it was Gordon Brown um, who I'm not sure when he said it, but sort of said um, we couldn't have had. I think it was sort of Arab Spring times, sort of 2010ish. He said if if there had been smartphones during the Rwandan genocide, it would have been stopped before that many people got killed. And and because the idea being the only way you can carry out a genocide is is in in darkness where where no one can see it. Saying so if, if if these images are being uploaded, it wouldn't happen anymore. I, what do you think about that sort of assessment? Do you do you think that sort of this has shown that? You know, people are very capable of ignoring images coming out
2: of a genocidal situation. People are capable of ignoring images coming out of a genocide, genocidal situation. And I think some people are capable of watching those images, happily watching those images and just keeping quiet about what they really think about them. I do think that there are some Islamophobes in the UK, in the US, who watch these videos and and, and think, oh, OK, well, fine, good. Um, and not to say that, that to the same extent, but we know that the UK and the US have um, big populations of people who don't like Muslims, big populations of people who buy into narratives about overpopulation especially, big populations of people who are gonna be saying things like, Oh well why are all of these these um these these um ethnic- These kind of Muslims and these Africans having all these kids and have all these high birth rates and we're not having our own and the, the narrative of kind of like white genocide and the rest. And so I think yes, social media does expose the truth more and it becomes more difficult to obfuscate what's going on and it becomes more difficult for those people of good conscience. And there are a lot of good people of good conscience in the Western world to, to, to look away, although some of them will still look away. And then if you look away, are you really a person of good conscience? That's a different question. Um, but at the same time, that isn't to say as, as 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 has been highlighted here that um historically dehumanization and currently dehumanization is also a tactic and when they are publishing these videos they're publishing them for their audience um which is an audience of <laughs> of racists and 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 um supremacists um and some people of course will be lapping it up but thankfully i think as well we've seen that yeah, it's, a, it's a mountain of evidence. <laughs> so if if the world ever decides to actually start following international law and enforcing it, no one can say the evidence is not there because the Israeli soldiers have been publishing it themselves.
1: I think that was very well put, Femi Nylander, Thank you so much for joining me this evening. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And remember, Seeking Refuge twenty sixty out next week. It does sound brilliant. We need we need to sort of get you on to talk about that at some point soon. Um, thanks to all of you for tuning in. Come back tomorrow for another show from 6pm. For now, you've been watching Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com/support.